This is Ready to Real Estate, a TREB podcast. Each month, we interview experts in the field, discuss the data, and explore all facets of the housing market. Whether you're a first-time homebuyer or a seasoned real estate professional, you will benefit from our insightful conversations and gain property intelligence as we discover more about the key issues shaping our industry. Now here's our host, Jason Mercer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ready to Real Estate. I'm your host, Jason Mercer, TREB's Chief Market Analyst. In just under one month, on June 26, Toronto is holding a by-election to elect its new mayor. Affordable housing has been a hot topic on the campaign trail. Rents in the city are skyrocketing, while the dream of buying a home moves further out of reach for many families, thanks to tight supply, growing population, and an overall high cost of living. Over half of Torontonians polled recently by Ipsos were unhappy with how City Council has so far addressed the problem of affordable housing and broader housing affordability. In fact, Council was given a failing grade. Some of the prominent mayoral candidates are currently on Council or have been in the recent past. So to help me unpack the housing issues most at stake in the upcoming by-election, I have four guests joining me today. Karen Stintz, is the CEO of Variety Village and is a former Toronto City Councillor and Chair of the TTC. Michael Coto is the current MP for Don Valley East. He was the former MPP for Don Valley East, during which he served in Cabinet for five years in various portfolios. Michael Giles is currently a Municipal Affairs Director for ResCon. He was previously the Chief of Staff to a few former City Councillors. And Stephen Adler brings over two decades of experience to national public relations, where he is Senior Director of Public Affairs. He specializes in working with both provincial and municipal governments. Thank you all for joining me. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. So before we jump into our conversation, we'll cover quite a bit of ground. So I I want to allow each uh, participant equal time to address the issues. And so we'll try to keep answers to about one minute. And certainly I'll follow up if if there's some issues that we need to to circle back on. But I guess to start a discussion today, I want to give each of you just a chance to state what you think are your top priorities heading into the the election, especially as it relates to housing. So uh, Karen Stintz, maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, thanks, Jason. You know, it's uh, housing is a complicated matter, as we know. If it was simple to solve, it would have been solved, uh, but it's not. And, uh, you know, from the perspective of being a former city councillor and a resident of the city of Toronto, you know, how we grow our neighborhoods and uh, strengthen our neighborhoods and make sure we have affordable housing. And, you know, again, affordability means different things to different people. So I think we need to be clear when we're talking about affordability, what that means and, and that it is segmented. Um, but also that we understand that it's not just about housing, it's about building everything else that is required to keep our neighborhoods as strong as they are, like such as schools, parks, rec centers, uh, transportation, road networks, and whatnot. So it um, it is a complicated discussion, and it, and it doesn't just involve the city. And there is a sense that city council can somehow fix this issue, and I, I think we need to, to, to blow that up and actually have a, a, a bigger, more robust discussion about how we, how we tackle this matter. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, and Michael Coteau, over to you, but certainly, you know, we, we've seen, you know, movement at all levels of government looking at, at, at housing policy, but certainly interested in, in your point of view with your background in terms of how that drills down into the municipal level. Yeah, there's no question that um, housing is complex. And, 
affordability has become a, a, a huge issue in our city. Actually, it's an issue right across the country. Um, and um, we just need to continue to build those relationships and, um, and re-examine current relationships in order to better position the city for a success. The way the city's structured today, um, there's no question that it, there's a deficiency in resources necessary uh, for it to, uh, to be at its best. Um, and you can see it, uh, there's a divide occurring in our city and the divide can be seen through housing, affordability, but also like things uh, that we don't often talk about, like cleansiness and uh, and safety. You know, different neighborhoods are impacted in, in different ways. And uh, you know, for me, affordability, housing, safety, and just the just the state of cleansiness in our city are all big issues to me. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's important. Like overall quality of life, it's not just about housing; it's about that housing continuum, and it's about how you relate to your to your neighborhoods uh, uh, therein. I, th I think you know all really good points. And and Michael Giles, from you know your your work at at, at Rescon and sort of thinking about housing supply, I assume that uh, you know the ability to get new homes on the ground is is a top priority for you and and certainly your organization. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say that you know one of the main things we have to do is fix the development process. When it can take 32 months to get a, a development project approved in the city of Toronto, clearly something's wrong. You know, you look at the city of Tokyo, the city of Tokyo, you know, the population of the greater Tokyo area borders on Canada's entire population. They've had housing equilibrium for the last 10 years and affordable housing. They have housing that people can afford. If you can do that in Tokyo, why can't we do that in Toronto? Uh, you know, we have to look at greater densification along arterial roads. Uh, I was recently at a uh, breakfast with someone and standing at, you know, right at, um, you know, Danforth Avenue, and you look and you've got two story buildings the whole way along underneath or on top of rather a major transit line. Um, you also have to have a renewed leadership at City Hall. You can't fix a problem with the mind that created it. And, uh, you know, finally, you just have to have better cooperation with the people who actually build housing in this in, in this in this city, in this province. Uh, builders build housing. Cities don't. And, uh, you know, when you have 62,000 approvals and nothing being built. Clearly, there's something to do that needs to be looked at in terms of economics. So that's my first blush on this stuff. Yeah, I think that word cooperation is really important. Stephen Adler, certainly, I mean, you've been looking at this issue um, and the relationship between different levels of government for, for a long time. And so maybe through you know that lens, what do you see as the key priorities as it relates to housing? So building on what everyone else has already said, we need to have two things. One, where is the money going to come from to actually build it? And you know whether it is a two-month delay or a 33-month delay, we need to find the money to move forward. The second is sitting around the council table, we need councillors to stop playing the NIMBY game. And we need them to look at the entire city. And Karen, I think it was you who said complete neighborhoods. That is exactly what we need. We need the gamesmanship to stop around the city council table and to move forward. And if we can do that, then maybe over time we can solve the problem of affordability and housing, but there is no magic wand. We are not getting 250,000 units tomorrow to solve the problem. And with respect to the federal and provincial government, when they allocate money, they allocate province-wide or nationally. Toronto gets one per a percentage of the larger program. The entire program envelope would not solve the problems that Toronto has in affordable housing and a housing affordability. I think that's a really good point. I kind of want to follow up on it a little bit, and and, and I'll certain uh, I'll circle back to to, to Karen Stintz 
uh, first and sort of thinking about, you know, the work that needs to be done um, on council to, to, you know, streamline this, this, this process, thinking about the candidates, and we've had a number of debates over the over the last couple of weeks. Um, has anyone kind of positioned themselves as, as kind of the leader when it comes to, you know, more housing supply, improving the affordability of, 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 of housing in the city? Well, yeah, you know, I think that there are definitely skill sets um, that the candidates have that are unique. Uh, Anna Balau had sat on the affordability uh, roundtable for affordable housing. And of course, Brad Bradford is an urban planner, so knows um, that, you know, has has direct knowledge around building housing. You know, again, this is not just a council issue. And so and I think that if we frame it as a council issue, then we miss the opportunity to actually delve into how we solve it. Um, we, you know, there are council, there is no question that the approval cycle can be shortened, but the reality is there have been approvals given and units not built. And council has no control over whether a developer makes the investment to actually build the units that have been approved. And certainly I know on council, we've I've seen cases where we've given, given approvals and 10 years later, we're still waiting for the development. That's not a council issue. That's something, that's something else. Um, and so, you know, there's certainly uh, ways that council can can streamline and improve the process. But but the reality is as well is that um, there's this un, there's this assumption that all the new development actually helps the budget of city council, but in fact, it does not. Uh, new tax revenue from these new builds do not cover the cost of servicing new residents as they enter the city, and so that's why we have this the systemic hole that we have in our in our budget. And Michael Koto, I mean, you know, both both as a as a as a provincial politician, and then obviously up to, up to the federal level, you know, getting back to that that concept of of, of cooperation, you know, who have you seen that 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 seems positioned to to be able to work, you know, with all all levels of government in order to to you know advance the housing file and and see more homes get on the ground. Yeah, I, you know, back to Karen's point that um, you know this is a, a responsibility that is shared by. You know all levels of government and uh, and the sector as a whole, right? Um, including development and organizations like yours, looking for solutions and 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 processes to put in place. But the current way we're doing things, there's no question that uh, you know there there could be massive improvements. Um, you know there there needs to be, I think, a, a rethink of uh, innovative ideas uh, to look for ways to. Um, uh, to think outside the box. Uh, I lived in South Korea for two years and uh, when the World Cup came, I saw them build an entire division of a city like in a year and a half. It was astonishing. We're talking like dozens of towers and subway connections and, you know, it was astonishing. And of course, we have we have different rules, you know, and, you know, compared to places like China when it comes to, you know, labor uh, relations and environmental rules, there's different rules in different sect in different places. But I think we need to rethink the way in, in which we approach housing as a whole, um, because there's there are too many divisions that don't allow the full um, uh, benefit of uh, the type of efforts that are being you know devoted to uh, to housing from uh, different levels of government. You know, for example, you know the the current uh, federal government has a seventy billion dollar plan over ten years that goes towards you know housing development. That's a massive investment, the largest ever. Uh, but still, we don't see the full benefits of uh, of massive change. Uh, so, you know, there's conversations that need to happen and uh, and innovative new ideas that I think need to enter, uh, you know, to make that real game change. Yeah, I, I, 
It, it's an interesting point, and, and uh, you know, credit where credits due. I mean, if you look at all three levels of government, if we were having this conversation five or ten years ago, and I was talking about housing supply or lack thereof, it would be, you know, Jason, that's a red herring. We need to look at this demand side policy or that demand side policy. You know, that's gonna that's gonna solve um, our problem. And I think, you know, as we kind of move through that policy mindset, we realize that at best those are short-term solutions and we get back to the fact that we're not keeping up um, with population growth. And so, you know, Michael, over uh, to you, just sort of thinking about, you know, the ability not only to bring on housing in the aggregate, um, but also see a greater diversity of housing, that missing middle, et cetera, in, in Toronto's neighborhoods, you know, from a, from a construction perspective, is anyone sort of jumping out from your standpoint of, of these candidates that, that would see uh, a more streamlined development process, especially to get that greater diversity of homes online? Yeah, well, I mean, I've had, fortunately had the opportunity to meet with all, all of the major candidates and then breakfast and that kind of thing. And they're all talk, you know, they are, I think, committed in a way that perhaps they no candidate has been in the past. I mean, in terms of, you know, approval processes, for example, we're talking about 60,000 approvals, um, you know, Housing Now program that was making news recently that, you know, not one shovel in the ground. Well, they put in the staff report the reason why. They simply, the cost of construction are not there. That's a program that had expedited approvals with all sorts of, you know, uh, uh, things moving through. So if they can't do it, they can't do it. How can they expect the residential construction sector to do that? If the economics are not there, all sorts of things have been put in place. Green standards, everything else you can imagine that add to the cost of this. You know, and the reality is the cost of a, of a new housing unit in the city of Toronto has a 31% of that is taxes, fees, and levies. So, you know, you cannot expect the, um, you know, the, the, if it, for example, Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler, if they were selling a car for $50,000 and it cost $60,000 to make, you're not going to be buying one of those cars. Uh, just to speak to the quickly to the federal government, I mean, we just did a report, a report recently came out from Cancia that showed, you know, the massive amounts of money that are collected from residential housing construction by the federal government. They were invested about 6.7% of that back. So they can have $70 billion plans and everything else. But what they really need to do is do something like the health transfer tax. They need to create an, infra, an infrastructure transfer fund that basically helps municipalities build those things because that should not be falling only on development charges or into municipalities. They don't have the tools. So, you know, there's room for cooperation on every level. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, you can't expect the residential construction sector to build something if it's costing more to build than it is to actually sell. Yeah, and I've talked about a lot in, in presentations I've given over the last couple of years is that, you know, we talk about housing from the perspective of population growth, but you're right, there is a, there's an economic development imperative that if we don't get it right, if we're not able to produce housing and the related infrastructure uh, to, to house the newcomer star to, to Canada who want to come here, they want to take advantage obviously of our of our diversity both in terms of you know social and cultural diversity but also economic diversity um, but you know that flow will slow down if people don't feel they're able to come here and companies don't feel they're able to come here um and 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 and, and find affordable housing so Stephen Adler maybe you know over to you sort of thinking about that that point but through that lens who's best positioned to I guess sort of link that economic development imperative to getting more housing online so that we can see this sort of virtual virtuous circle you know as more more people you know move here so i think all the plan all the platforms have short have long-term objectives their housing plans are more of a long-term approach it's not going to happen overnight the short-term needs are drastic and i think that what most of the candidates are missing is what happens on day one 
We can say, Karen, you rightly said that not all the delays are around the council table. Sometimes it's the developers who haven't moved forward with the planning. And uh, Michael Couteau, you said that the feds are giving more money than ever before. And Michael Jaws, you said how, you know, there are issues of costing to make it happen because you can't build at a loss using the car example. We also need to think of new ways of doing it. What I haven't heard any of the top line candidates talk about is if we're building a high rise unit, can we make a deal with the local school board that the first two floors of the building are the new school? The parkland around it is from nine to three, the school, and from 3.30 to 8.30, the neighborhood. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about how many parking spots and how many bike spots, but we don't spot, spend a lot of time actually following through with new ways to do it. When I look around the world, we have vertical cities. And these vertical cities, people have raised kids really, really, really well in it. Um, and that's what we're missing in the short-term plan. My fear with a bunch of the platforms is it's going to be the transit debates all over again. We're going to have someone come in as mayor, and suddenly it's going to be almost like a big stop sign, and we start from square one again. We simply can't afford three to four more years of debate of what to do. We need to start doing now and working with everybody. Yeah, and what you're talking about, Stephen Adler. I mean, I, I think to everyone you know talking here today sounds like sounds like common sense, and and I think you know we have made strides in terms of identifying what the what the issue is, but there still certainly seems to be a mismatch between what we're seeing on council and what we've seen unfold at city hall over the past number of years um, versus what you know your average voter. Um, in the city of Toronto, how they view housing affordability and, and, and how it's been dealt with. I mean, Treb um, asked Ipsos to, to conduct a poll. It was 800 or so Toronto residents. And, and, and what we found is that 93% of the people say that we're in a housing affordability crisis. And that's whether you're looking at rental or ownership in the, in the city. You know, close to 80% of those people said, you know, the, the, the root cause is that we need more homes and haven't been able to to do it. And, you know, more than half of the people are saying council has been, you know, utterly failing at this. They're giving, you know, 23% gave council D, 31% gave council the, the grade of F. Um, and, and so, you know, close to 90% of people are saying, you know, housing needs to be sort of the priority as we move forward. So Karen, maybe back to you and just sort of thinking, oh, where's, I, I think everyone in the city of Toronto is on the same page that we have a housing affordability issue that's rooted in the supply side uh, uh, of things, but there seems to be a real mismatch between how we've dealt with it thus far um, versus, uh, um, you know, your average uh, uh, Toronto City household and, and, and what they view needs to be done. And how do we close that gap? How do we get rid of that mismatch in views? Yeah, I mean, Jason, again, it's complicated, right? Because if we look at affordability in terms of um, people who need to be sheltered or housed because they're vulnerable, there is a big gap there. And, um, you know, now we've normalized sleeping in parks because we can't meet that gap. So that's one element of affordability that the city actually has much more um, ability to impact than, um, you know, the new couple that just gets married, has their first child and wants to establish their home and in their neighborhood. Because, you know, again, certain neighborhoods are priced out of reach. Other neighborhoods are not, but may not be the neighborhood they want to live in. 
And so, and that's where city council has less ability because again, we're in charge of the approvals, but you know, we don't control the rate of interest. We don't control um, all of the taxes and fees. We control some, but not all. And even the province has taken away our ability to charge development charges. So council actually has much of their authority that has been taken away from them in terms of this process, other than simply stamping approvals and maybe adding a couple of trees and landscaping to a development. Um, and so I, I do think that if we if we allow this discussion to be a council discussion and then a council responsibility, then we will absolutely not solve it because most of the tools and levers that actually help create housing don't rest with the with the city council. You know, if we're talking about the cost of labor, if we're talking about the number of rules and regulations, if we're talking about, um, you know, the availability of land or even to Michael's point, the fact that it'll all along Dufferin or um, uh, excuse me. Um, Danforth. Danforth, there's like, you know, two stories above, you know, a major subway line. Well, you know, the city doesn't own that land. Those are individually held parcels of land. And so our ability to impact development is extremely restricted. And so, again, I, you know, I guess my takeaway or what I'd like to impart is that this is not a city council issue. And because we're at the local level, the natural um, desire is to say, well, city council should solve this. But it, it is really not ours alone to solve. So, Michael, over to you. And you've, you know, again, you've you've worked at the provincial level. Now you're at the at the federal level. Um, and, and so, you know, from from Karen's perspective, I mean, those, those levels of government um, can affect change as well, and and, and can work effectively ideally with a, with a municipal government to, to, to bring more housing online. And so perhaps there's a, a, a mismatch between, you know, the understanding of how much power a council has from, from a household perspective in the city of Toronto, um, you know, versus policy issues at the provincial and, 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 and federal level. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think it's unfair to, uh, to just uh, point the finger at council and, uh, you know, that grade of a D, I don't know if it was a D plus, but a D, um, you know, I think, uh, again, going back to the point that it's uh, there's many factors involved in in housing development in the city. You know, what Toronto's going through is the same challenge that many cities around the world, when they reach a certain capacity of economic development and population, they go through the exact same, you know, big challenge, right? The affordability, home ownership becomes a big challenge. We've got, uh, of course, uh, many new people, Canadians coming into the country that creates more demand. There's the, there's landlock. Uh, in Toronto. It's not like we've got big parcels of land to develop. Um, and uh, I, it really, for me, comes down to Toronto not having the tools it needs to, to get what it wants to you know, get done, done. And uh, it's like me asking you to fix something. We'll go back to the car analogy. I think Michael made it, but it's like me asking you to fix the engine of the car, but not giving you the tools to, uh, to do it. Um, so I think I've always advocated for a new deal for Toronto. Um, you know, I don't know exactly what it looks like. You know, some people may refer to that as a chartered city. Some people may say, you know, changing legislation. But I really think Toronto needs a new deal when it comes to, you know, the power it has and the tools necessary to make decisions that impact the city. Um, and, um, you know, we're talking about a city that generates, uh, what is it, 20% of the GDP of the country? Um, you know, there's more cranes in operation. And this, is, this speaks to the development that's actually taking place. Uh, there's more cranes in operation in Toronto than any other jurisdiction. I think it's 253 and Los Angeles comes second with 53. Like, you know, Toronto's doing its part. It's creating, uh, it's creating space, but it's just not, not enough space because there's so much demand. 
And it's a shame that, you know, someone who, you know, if a, if a couple's together trying to raise a family, working two full-time jobs, uh, and they're saving their money, it's a shame that they don't have the ability to participate in that Canadian dream of home ownership. Um, you know, so we need to fix something because uh, if people can't do that, uh, they lose faith in, uh, you know, in cities like Toronto and they eventually leave. And we're seeing that in, in many in many ways. Yeah, and it gets back to the point about economic development. I mean, Michael, your organization, this members know a lot about cranes and, and the amount of construction, you know, we already see uh, or are seeing in the in the GTA and even broader uh, uh, greater Golden Horseshoe. But, you know, thinking about the, the, the city of Toronto and the type of construction we need, um, you know, how, how in a couple of years time after this after this by-election, do we do this polling again um, and see more B's and even A's in terms of, you know, how we're dealing with uh, 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 with housing? And, and I think both Michael and Karen are right that, that, that there needs to be some sort of new or improved relationship with with the upper tiers of government. Well, I, I think absolutely there needs to be a you know an intergovernmental approach, but you also have to keep in mind you know the the, the city of Toronto uh, like for example the Statistics Canada data from December showed that the largest demographic of people leaving this city was 15 years of age and under. Clearly, they're not leaving alone. They're leaving with their parents. That's two oh. generations of workers, two generations of residents of this city that are never coming back. And if we don't get this right, we're going to end up with hollowed out neighborhoods with you know uh, economic development in in the, the toilet now having said that you know you, the city of toronto does have a lot of things at its disposal that it can deal with you know you have green standards that are simply adding massive amounts of costs to the development we're not saying you don't do green standards but let's be more realistic about how they're, they're being implemented i've been part of discussions at the city where you have you know a densification of of, of uh, buildings when they're building and city planning staff pushing back on two or three additional floors on a development of 30 or 40 floors. I mean, this kind of insanity needs to stop. If we're going to build, we need to build you know, uh, effectively. And then the spin cycle of the development process, which the former mayor talked about. I mean, there's instances where you have people submit development applications and wait eight and a half months for a reply to circulation. So city can do things. We're going to have to do things because if the, if the city of Toronto doesn't, the economic impacts are going to be you know, devastating. And, and again, the, I guess that's just finished with the point being that young people have a choice now. They can leave. And the fact is, they are leaving. And and Stephen, I, I think Michael raises a good point that you know while every level of government needs to do their part, things like log jams in the in in sort of at the at the process level of things. I mean, that is something that that we can that we can work on at the city level for sure. And certainly, um, any incoming mayor could 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 try to affect that change. So how do how do we make that happen? So I I think the first thing is you can't use the sledgehammer. You, the new mayor cannot come in with their staff and use a sledgehammer to planning or any of the other departments and say, make it happen immediately. We need to look into to see what needs to be talked about and what really doesn't. I'm always amazed at how many council items deal with tree removal. As an example, I mean, it's very important to, to protect the tree canopy, but on a three-day council meeting where you're talking about that. So I think we really need to look at with the chief planner and maybe some former chief planners, if they could wave their magic wand, what is the minute, what do they need to change and what do they need to keep their fingers all over? But when it looks at affordable versus affordability, getting back to the poll result, Canadians don't know who does what. So, you know, it's a pox on everybody's houses. I'm sure if we if we started the polling with and Mr. Trudeau's approach to housing or mm -hmm. Premier Ford's approach to housing, they would get D's as well. 
because we're talking about affordable, which is not a 5,000 a square foot unit now renting for 4,000 a square foot. Look at me, I've reduced the cost. Affordable is rent geared to income, traditional affordable housing to give people a place to live. Affordability though, is not just the city of Toronto's issue. We need to look at the mortgage stress test. We need to look at credit card for, uh, rates. We need to find a way that people who might be able to afford the one, two, $4,000 a month mortgage payment don't qualify for the mortgage and therefore are left out of the housing. And that could be some of those 15-year-olds leaving whose parents can't qualify for housing because the average house in Toronto is 1.7 and change. I don't know, the Jason, you know the number better than I. When you look at Hamilton, it's not 1.7. And so by moving out of Toronto, I suddenly qualified for the mortgage. Yeah, that's right. And, and that gets back to also you know, other levels of government, because what you're seeing in Toronto starts to spread. And now we're talking about a, a greater golden horseshoe problem. You know, when we talk about Toronto, we're really talking mm -hmm. about the GTA and even broader GGH because, you know, it, people have just had to, they've had to, you know, reassess their housing situation and, and, uh, and make their choices uh, accordingly. So you're right. I mean, what we're talking about here today vis-a-vis -vis the upcoming, you know, Toronto election could be playing itself out in, in any municipality across Ontario. And that's why there's the, that need for cooperation. Uh, I mean, we've talked a lot about housing supply. Certainly, you know, Treb, in conjunction with our recent polling, has said, you know, there's three priorities we need to look at in terms of housing. We've we've talked quite a bit about um, housing supply already, but certainly, you know, the diversity of home types um, is, is an important point. And maybe, you know, before we get on to things like like taxes and 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 fees and what have you, um, I just want to talk one more issue on supply, and that's that sort of buzzword we've heard a lot about over the last number of years, and that's the missing middle. And we have seen some movement on that front whereby in the city of Toronto, you know, we can now see at least, you know, on paper, um, a greater uh, diversity of home types coming online in neighborhoods throughout uh, the city. So I guess, you know, thinking about moving from the policy paper into shovels in the ground, A, how do we start to see this type of, you know, you know, plaque, stack, town, construction, et cetera, start to ramp up in many neighborhoods? And number two, you know, is that going to be enough? I mean, I, I think it will augment and, and 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 help the issue that we have right now. But is that enough? So maybe Karen, back to you to start that off. Well, yeah, you know, I, 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 so I think it is a solution. There's no question, but I think it will be unevenly distributed throughout the city, you know, based on the types of housing that is, you know, currently uh, in neighborhoods. And, you know, I say that living at Young and Eglinton, where we're already pretty compacted. And uh, to add that level of additional density would would it would create um, pressures in a community that's already um, feeling that the the impact of increased density. Um, but you know, I also work in Scarborough, and there's lots of opportunities to build um, all kinds of housing in Scarborough, and um, and also there's not the pressure on the road system, the pressure on the schools, the pressure on um, the parks, and so you know, it's not. It's not that we want to target people to certain neighborhoods, but I, I think that the impacts of this housing policy will be felt unevenly. And um, and perhaps there needs to be some additional incentives to create um, more opportunities in neighborhoods that can more easily absorb the, the types of density that we're talking about. Um, because, Stephen, although I hear your point and that we need to work more collaboratively, 
collaboratively with the school boards, that means that the school boards need to work more collaboratively with the municipalities. And then, you know, again, if we're trying to reduce delays, you don't want to add another level of um, approvals into already a burdensome process. And so, as I say, it's not, it's not a straight line. It's not, and it's not, there's not one policy. It's not like a zoning policy is going to fix this matter. And it, and it's, it's frustrating for me to have been on the front lines, to see the complexity of it, and to think that it gets answered by zoning change. That's not how we solve this problem. So, you know, uh, Steve and Karen brought up your point around, uh, you know, collaboration between the, the the city and school boards. Maybe I'll break ranks a little bit and 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 shoot it over to you. I mean, you know, how do we how do we see better collaboration between those uh, um, between those bodies? And it's true. I mean, you know, you talk about the development we're seeing right now, Karen said Young and Eglinton, and I'm not that far from there. Uh, and, and you certainly see, um, you know, billboards up everywhere saying, you know, we got this great new housing development coming online, but your kid may not get to go to school there. Right. They'll get to go to school, but it may not be here. They may be on a bus or whatever. And, and, and that's an important point as well, because as we're densing up neighborhoods, we're seeing more uh, uh, units. Um, you know, one of the big neighborhood priorities, and you mentioned it, is that you have an overall quality of life. And, and so I'd argue that your quality of life is diminished if your kids go into, you know, a school in some other neighborhood, whereas neighborhood friends don't go. So look, I, I don't want to open up a whole can of worms on school systems, funding of school systems, how we do school systems. We'll save that for another podcast. But the discussion doesn't need to be years and years and years. We are seeing in certain neighborhoods in Toronto decisions made by school boards to sell surplus land, rent out surplus schools, now coming back to be a problem because we don't have the facility in that area. And so we need to start the discussion. Look, anytime you bring three levels of government to a table, you're adding years to a discussion. But there has to be a way to speed it up, because here's what I know about trustees, counselors, MPs, and MPPs. They have four-year terms, and then they're running for re-election again. And so none of them want to be the person blamed for the, for the shovel not going into the ground, because they need to go walk the neighborhoods to get the votes. What we need, though, and I'm being flippant with that, but what we really need is an end to the nimbyism. Let's develop where we have the land, where we can do it. I live in the annex. I have neighbors who are against laneway sweeps. Why are they against laneway sweeps? They take up time of committee preaching against it. To me, it's an obvious decision that if the homeowner wants to build a laneway suite at the end of their property because they don't have a car or they don't require a car or they don't use the garage, why are we spending years, months, days talking about why we shouldn't do it? But to get back to the, the question about the school boards, it's long-range planning. We do long-term planning for population growth for everything, transit, waste reduction, uh, police services, fire services. I'm just saying make it part of it. And it may not work. And Karen can rightfully come back at me in a couple of years. We'll have a drink and she'll say, Steve, you're totally wrong. And I'll say, yeah, but we tried. Yeah, and 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 Michael, I mean, just sort of thinking about the uh, the NIMBY issue. I mean, we had Urban Strategies do a report for for Trab in conjunction with one of our 
our year in review and outlook reports that we put out each year. And, and we ask, you know, show us what missing middle can look like. Show us what it can look like, um, you know, based on best practices from, you know, around the world um, in, in existing communities versus new developments. And I think by and large, when we saw that presentation and our members and certainly members of the public were looking at it, you know, by and large, we were like, wow, that looks really good. That, that potential laneway suite looks great. That potential fourplex within an existing neighborhood can look really, really good. And I think a lot of it gets back to, you know, sort of education around, you know, design and, and what the art of the possible is. And I think that gets back to, you know, your group in the sense that, you know, there, there's a lot of innovation that we've seen in the, on the, in, in the construction sector and the development sector over the last decade that could be brought to bear on this problem. Absolutely. And I mean, if you look at uh, the city of Toronto, you look at the older neighborhoods, uh, pre-1940, you know, basically missing the, what we're talking about now for missing middle housing was the norm. You know, you look at all the neighborhoods downtown along the, you know, there's, there, there's, that was the norm. So it can be done. I mean, we, we, we use euphemisms for this, you know, the character of the neighborhood and all that kind of stuff. What we're really saying is, and it's just human nature, we don't want things to change. We like things the way they are. Well, you know, unfortunately, when you have 500,000 people coming to Canada every year and you have population increase, things are going to have to change. If you want to sit in your backyard in a Muskoka chair, you know, sell and move to Muskoka and sit in the backyard there. But the point is, you, you know, we're going to have to build, you're going to have to intensify. <clears throat> and uh, speaking to Karen's point, you know, missing middle housing is not the panacea. It's not the solution to everything, but it's part of a, a broader solution. And, <clears throat> you know, we start building that kind of thing. You start getting people used to it and it becomes the norm. I mean, if, I remember flying into uh, the Lisbon once and you look out of the window of the airplane in Lisbon, the entire place is basically a missing middle. You know, they built everything there. So if we're going to have these solutions, we're going to have to do that. And we also going to have to deal with the heritage issues. You know, one of the things that struck me is that, you know, they, they one of the tactics to preserve the character of the neighborhood at the end of the last council session, there was 237 properties designated along the Danforth as heritage. I drove down there. I don't see that much heritage. It doesn't look like Rome to me. So the point is that we've got to, you know, we've got to start pushing back on this kind of stuff. And I think one of them was a soy sauce factory. Uh, fortunately, that one got voted down because, I, I, you know, I don't I don't think we're going to need a heritage plaque on a soy sauce factory. Anyway, it's my take. Yeah, so sort of picking up on on, on a few of these points, Michael, like it, it, it's the, the province especially has been accused lately of, of wielding a big stick when it comes to, to the development and, and development policy. But at the same time, when you think about heritage, um, you think about the Planning Act. Um, you know, this is all under the, the the purview of the of the provincial government and that relationship with municipalities like the like the city of Toronto. And so, you know, where's the area of improvement that would see this greater diversity of home types come online, but at the same time, perhaps helping you know municipalities strike the balance that Karen's talking about, where it all doesn't wind up in one place. Yeah, I have, I have so much to say about so many of the comments that were made. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's. Um... You know, it's easy to me, and this is no disrespect to Stephen or Michael, but it's easy to say, you know, why are we talking about trees or why isn't it so easy to create, you know, different type? But once your name's on a ballot, it becomes a whole different, you know, scenario. You know, you're representing a community that is concerned about, you know, how it's going to impact its community. And that tree that Stephen brought up becomes a big issue in the community. So um, it's easy for us to say, you know, for outside of government, um, you know, what we should be doing. But the tricky part is finding that balance when you're actually in government between what the community wants. Now, my neighborhood, Don Mills, 100 buildings are going up uh, along the Don Mills corridor um, because of the transit changes that are happening there. It's a huge impact to our community. 
Um, so, you know, neighborhoods like mine, uh, we're doing our part. We're trying as hard as we can to, uh, you know, to, to, to capture the growth. But back to the school board, um, I would actually give the school board, the Toronto District School Board, a very good mark on playing its role because they actually created the Toronto Lands Corporation years ago. And I think it's like 130 pieces of property um, that trustees would never vote on, um, you know, to, to decide what should happen to that school have gone through a third party, an arm's length organization, the Toronto Lands Corporation, uh, with the objection of getting the most money possible, bringing it back to the school board to support education. And, um, you know, that's worked out well for them. Um, I am personally interested in what the integrated uh, regional plan looks like for uh, the GTA, because it's. I don't think this is a Toronto issue. I think you said that earlier, Jason. This is an issue that impacts, I think, the entire region. And not that I necessarily support, for example, the plan in Innisfil, the orbit, but it's those types of like innovative, big, bold ideas. I don't know if you, that's, you know, it's a project they talked around 19, 2019, around uh, building this city of the future around Innisfil, Ontario. But it's looking, I think, for innovative, big solutions that are game changers that allow us to rethink the way we, you know, think about uh, housing in, 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 in our region. So I think that uh, we need to stop calling this a Toronto issue and really look for an integrated regional uh, solution that, you know, that with the help of all of our different players uh, around Toronto, because we can't do this alone. Uh, it can't be just the three levels of government. It can't be just construction development companies. It can't just be school boards or Toronto community housing. It has to be everyone, including the region. So I think we've got a big, uh, a big job in front of us. My last point, I would love to see a conference on housing that, you know, that was framed in a way that allowed for, I don't want to call them crazy ideas, uh, you know, but ideas that are way outside the box you know, rethinking the way we look at housing, just to kind of, you know, loosen our our, 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 our current situation. And maybe that's a role that Trev can play in the future. Yeah, I think, you know, innovation and crazy ideas. I mean, crazy ideas foster innovation. They get distilled down and you get something new uh, and it's a chicken and egg. Like people pick up on a new idea right. and then it starts to, you know, gain momentum and all of a sudden you have something new. And, and I think, you know, I think we're on the cusp of that. Like, I think we're headed in the right direction. And I think we are on the cusp of that and, and, and we'll need to be. Um, you know, otherwise it gets back to that whole economic development issue. And are we going to continue uh, to see that growth? I want to shift gears a little bit out of, you know, housing development and, and more to the other side of affordability. And that's, you know, money coming out of people's bank account, coming out of their, 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 their pocketbook to pay for services, particularly at the, at the municipal level. And so obviously, you know, it's no secret over the years. I mean, Treb has said that the municipal land transfer taxes is, is unfair and it's also not sustainable from a, from a revenue generation perspective in the last year, you know, really sort of magnifies that point. There's a hole in the city's budget right now. And a lot of that has to do um, with not as much activity in the housing market over the past year or so. And so, you know, thinking about the need to, you know, be fair yet balanced on the property tax side of things. I mean, what are your views um, in, in, in terms of revenue generation for the city vis-a-vis -vis an MLTT versus, you know, having another look at property taxes? And Karen, maybe I'll start with you uh, being a former city councillor. Yeah, thanks, Jason. You know, it's a, it, it's one that um, we've been, you know, we've raised as a council, um, but it's it's not, we haven't found an audience for it, the discussion yet, and that our budget is unsustainable. And, and it's unsustainable because it continues, um, just the cost of providing services in the city outstrips our ability to generate revenue to cover those costs. 
And when we look at things like the TTC, like our shelter system, like police, uh, those are all big ticket items that they, they don't just provide services to the people of Toronto, they provide services to the people of the region because the Toronto police provide safety and security for businesses, for tourists, for um, me, you know members of the greater Toronto area. You know, our shelter system, we understand is housing a third of the residents in the shelter system right now are refugees. And none of that can be funded through property taxes. And, you know, we talk about, and I think it was Michael that talked about the fact the federal government is getting, you know, HST revenue, the provincial government is getting revenue on, you know, on new development, on economic activity. We don't see any of that. And not only is our land transfer tax taking um, a dip because of the impacts of the slowing down in the housing market, the hollowing out of the downtown core because people are working from home is putting an impact on our tax base as well because um, commercial taxes are taxed at a rate of two and a half times residential. And so the city is in an extremely precarious financial situation and new development does not help the bottom line for the city. And so at some point, we need to have levels of government have a deeper understanding of what it is the city is expected to fund and the levers with which we have to fund it, because the mismatch is going to become quite acute in, in very short order. I think that's an interesting segue maybe over to, to, to Michael Giles, sort of thinking about your know, revenue generation. And we, we have revenue generation on the operating front, but also on the on the on the capital side, which gets us back to you know development fees. And and you know, on the on the one side, you know, the argument is that you know we need to uh, have these fees in order to, to to fund the infrastructure required for new development, but uh, on the other side, it gets passed through to the end user of that home. Um, and and uh, you know increases the the price and reduces affordability. So you know uh, thinking about you know the, the the slate of people running for uh, a mayor in the upcoming election, um, you know how do they? What's the rethink required on development fees? Well, I mean the challenge with the development is we're talking about forty six percent increase uh, uh, near the end of the last term, and you know that cannot be the method by which we uh, as a city. Uh, fund major infrastructure to support residential development. The federal government needs to come to the table. I know it's sort of an old mantra that everybody keeps talking about, but they, you know, they are benefiting massively from from taxation revenue in the Greater Toronto area. The provincial government has come to the table to some degree, but you know, both need to be at the table fully, uh, particularly the federal government. You know, they they had mechanisms in place in the 1970s, 1980s. You know, they uh, limited dividend, demura, all these kind of things, and, and development. You know, there was building was going like crazy, and as soon as they stopped doing that, that stopped. Uh, that doesn't even require legislative change. It's actually still there as a policy, as a taxation policy. They could literally flip a switch and that would all start again. So yeah, they need to come to the table. Uh, having said that, you know, you can't have a situation where people are buying a home and 31% of the cost of that home is taxes, fees, and levies. I mean, if you increase taxes on the on a vehicle purchase, the same way you increase taxes on a residential purpose uh, purchase, that's, you know, you, you'd be, there'd be people would be up in arms. The thing that you have to, you know, the, and the president of the restaurant has mentioned this several times, we tax residential housing the same way we tax cigarettes and alcohol. It's actually taxed in a way that discourages the use of that. And so that needs to change because, frankly, if people can't afford to live here, they'll stop living here. Yeah, and sort of thinking about that and 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 how, you know, there's different levels of government that that play a role here, and I think this is a question for both Michael Cotto and 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 Stephen Adler in the sense that you know we had through the through the the, the 90s and then into the early 2000s a sort of progressive downloading of, of of service delivery onto the municipal level. Yet you didn't see 
um, uh, uh, an increase in, in revenue tools to, to any great degree, especially ones that were sort of fair vis-a-vis -vis the types of services that were being delivered. Uh, but it's easy, you know, for any of the candidates running to, for mayor to say, well, you know, we need more uh, powers for revenue generation um, from, from different levels of government. But, you know, ultimately, the money is all coming from one place, and, and, that's, the, and that's the taxpayer. And so how do you square that where, you know, if there's another, if there's another uh, a revenue generation tool granted, say, by the provincial government, um, you know, how do you square that against, you know, it, it's all coming from one taxpayer base at the end of the day? And maybe, Michael Koto, I'll start with you. Yeah, there were um, there were some things that were put in place. I know during uh, when we were in government, you know, for example, the gas tax uh, that attempted to really look for ways to provide more resources to the city. Um, I do think that we need to continue to look for ways to uh, to provide more uh, revenue that comes in uh, to uh, to the municipality. They've got, again, they've got some responsibilities like the infrastructure responsibility alone is, uh, you know, they, they can't continue, um, you know, on the on their current trajectory uh, to 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 you know to develop the the type of uh, infrastructure expectations that are necessary. So. I'm just going to go back to the, one of my main points, and is that is, is that we need to rethink the relationship. The city of Toronto has moved beyond a point um, of being just a, a medium-sized city, and there's other cities that are facing the same type of pressure. And uh, we need to look at a regional, um, you know, multi-government uh, approach to finding those solutions. And and um, you know, the province I think has the number one responsibility. Um, and uh, and there's no question that the city uh, that the federal government has a massive responsibility as well because of the you know the economic development side of things and the impact it has on Canada as a whole. So without a question, we need more cooperation and uh, and and more uh, more rethinking of uh, of that relationship. So what do you think, Stephen, in terms of sort of balancing out the need for revenue generation and 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 who pays what and who's responsible for what? I mean, you know, how, how do we strike that balance? So look, the easy thing to do is you have a committee report back about the low-hanging fruit that grabs the public attention about wasted money. Those processes, federally, provincially, municipally, usually don't solve the long-term problem. They sort of divert attention away. I think it was former city manager Peter Wallace who was commenting about the land transfer tax, municipal land transfer tax, and compared it to a line of credit, that it's not there forever, and we can't balance the budget of Toronto based on the municipal land transfer tax. That was before COVID. So what do we need to look at? There are certain services that maybe the city should not be the primary organization running it. The TTC funding, and, and Karen, I know you're a former chair of the TTC, and so my numbers might be a bit off, but going by memory, I don't believe we get operational money from the province or the federal government for the TTC. So when transit goes down, ridership goes down based on the fare box, then there's a gap that has to be filled by general revenues from the city of Toronto. But here's the thing. The cost of running the bus or the subway doesn't change, and you don't suddenly not run a car on the Young University Spadina line because there's only four people on there. You still run the subway. So we need to look at that. We also have to get away from rhetoric. And so, yes, there is one taxpayer, and you know the conservatives will have their opinion on the one taxpayer, the liberals another, the NDP a third, but we need to move past the rhetoric to get it done. 
I recall on the old TV show, The West Wing, during a debate, Martin Sheen's character said in response to the opponent, there it is. There's the 10-word uh, answer that my staff have been looking for all week. But if you can give me the next 10 words and the 10 words after that, how you're going to do it and how we get it done. And that's what's missing. So, Jason, yes, there's one taxpayer, but we've never had the real discussion about if you take on transit funding and if you provide funding for refugee care, and I'm generalizing here, we then have can reallocate X dollars to this. That's where the discussion needs to go because we're at a we are at a precipice right now. We can't afford the next 10 years and a zero percent tax increase is actually going to hurt the city of Toronto because it won't even keep the status quo. Mm -hmm. Those are all great points. And I, I guess, you know, before I gave you all a chance to provide some concluding thoughts on the on the upcoming election, I wanted to switch gears to sort of the, the decision making apparatus at council and, and how a lot of these topics will be discussed and debated and ultimately uh, voted upon or, or how the dialogue will uh, take place between different levels of government. And, and I want to come back to, you know, what was another sort of controversial move on, on the part of the, the provincial government, and, and that's the notion of, of, of strong mayor powers. And, and so certainly uh, from the Toronto and Ottawa perspective, you know, mayors now have these so-called uh, uh, powers, which um, allow them to, to veto council decisions that may in, uh, interfere with, with provincial priorities, uh, they may also propose housing-related bylaws and pass them with the support of only one-third of councillors. How do you see these powers being used by the next mayor to, to solve um, you know, housing and, and housing-related issues? And, and, and do you think some candidates in the upcoming election are, are more likely to use them than others? Maybe I'll start with, uh, we'll switch it up. We'll start with Stephen Adler this time. So I've never met a politician who has not used powers given to them. And so, you know, it's it's easy to say I won't use it until you need to. The real questions that are being that need to be focused on is can the mayor get nine votes in council, eight others to agree with them to ensure that the two third vote of council overruling a mayoral decision doesn't take place? And can a mayor get 12 other votes to pass motions? People, a lot of people don't understand that municipal politics is totally different than provincial and federal. You don't walk in with majority and guarantee it to happen. You actually have to talk to councillors. You have to work together. You have to collaborate. And successful mayors have coalitions from the right, center, and the left because Every councillor has an equal voice sitting around the table. So I look at the discussion as, as, of the strong mayor power saying that those candidates saying they'll never use it. I really want to ask them, can you get eight other votes? Do you have 12 other people that are going to support you on the majority of your issues? Because that's going to be the problem. It's easy. Well, not easy. In theory, it's easy to allocate the strong mayor uh, powers for, for those small basket of issues that it's associated with. But let's talk about some of the zoning issues we've talked about. Let's talk about building some of the communities. Let's talk about transit fares or police service budgets. Those don't fall, not all of those fall under the strong mayor umbrella. So 
can you get the votes to get your agenda through? And hopefully the election will turn from what I say I'm going to do to how I'm going to do it so we can hear those answers. Michael Giles, I mean, what are your thoughts on that from a from a <clears throat> development perspective, from a home construction perspective, um, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the strong mayor of powers? Well, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, they, obviously I'd support the idea of using those powers. I, Karen will be familiar, of course, because having been around city council for a while, it's people who like sausages and laws shouldn't watch either being made. It was like literally a very difficult process to get things done. I think one of the stronger things that they can do with the strong mayor powers is to cajole people, you know, and, and to, to encourage people to come on board before you actually have to use them. And so it can also almost be a threat, you know, the way the American president uses the veto threat. You can have the ability to say, you know, if you're not going to do this, I'm going to use strong mayors. But the strong mayor powers also extend beyond actual council operation itself. I mean, one of the I think one of the most substantive things that are associated with the strong mayor powers is the ability of the of the new mayor um, when he or she takes office to literally uh, choose who's in, you know running the city divisions and, and senior leadership in the city. That's a very powerful tool because up until now it was approved by council. So yeah, there are things they can do. I, I strongly believe that, uh, as, as Stephen says, you know, you're not going to have a politician. It's not going to have power. It's not going to use it. And if it's used well, it can actually advance things fairly quickly. So Michael Cotto, on the one side, I mean, to, to, to Michael's point, this could this could help in sort of advancing housing development and seeing the missing middle type of housing we want to see come online, the related infrastructure and what have you. Thinking about it from, you know, uh, someone who's been a member of, of, of senior levels of government, uh, is there a is there a potential backfire? I mean, if we if we see the, the strong mayor powers getting used at the Toronto level and then sort of seeing how that comes comes back into play at the provincial level, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's it's always a, a great concept until you get a bad mayor in place, right? And then some bad decisions start to happen. I've never been a fan of the uh, strong mayor powers. I believe that the executive, uh, the mayor should have executive powers. Uh, but the veto to me is uh, is something I've never agreed with to override the decision of council. You know, not even the prime minister or the premier have the ability to override the House of Commons or Queen's Park. So even though it's a party system, if uh, the premier or the prime minister make a decision and the House, the assembly does not agree, um, they don't get to override anything. So it's interesting that, you know, a body like Queen's Park with a premier that has to still uh, fall with under, you know, under the, the, the will of the House, the 124 members, you know, provided the ability for a mayor to veto the assembly's, uh, you know, no right to decide its own fate. So I disagree with it in principle, uh, but I do believe that there are certain things that um, uh, council should decide on to give the, the executive and the mayor um, the ability to make decisions within a certain uh, contained executive uh, role. I think it's an interesting point, but it, you know, uh, again, I'll, I'll come back to this notion, you know, at the federal level and provincial level, and, and you mentioned it, Michael. Like there, there is this concept or convention of party discipline and, and confidence uh, um, in 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 the government, and and that does allow you know the leader and cabinet to you know push a certain agenda through. Um, but you know, Karen, from your perspective, that same um, ability, you know, isn't there, you know, at the executive level trickling down to, to, to council, or at least, you know, wasn't until these strong mayor powers came online. So for someone who, you know, was working in the more, you know, traditional Toronto council construct versus what you see today in terms of strong mayors, maybe the last word on this, you know, what are your mm -hmm. thoughts in terms of pushing the policy agenda moving forward? Well, you know, I guess I have two thoughts. One is that, um, the strong mayor powers are contained and limited, uh, and restricted to as long as it aligns with the provincial interest. 
And so that hasn't been tested. We don't actually know what that means, but it doesn't give the mayor unfettered strong powers. It gives the mayor strong powers relate, related to provincial alignment. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, um, and, you know, it's a little bit of one of these uh, ephemeral exercises or intellectual exercises, but the, the entire basis of governing systems in a democracy rely on checks and balances. And there is no inherent check and balance uh, with the system that a mayor uh, with eight friends on council can then control an agenda as long as it aligns with the provincial interest. And and I, I think that we're going to see more downfalls to that than we are going to see upsides. And so my strong expectation is that uh, the new mayor, whoever is elected, will use those powers because the new mayor will be elected with less than 20% of the vote and will need to use those powers because they haven't had the chance to form a broad consensus that most mayors get when they get elected by the city. Because that was the idea mm-hmm. that if a mayor gets elected by across the entire city, they have built a mandate that then enables them to use these powers. This mayor will not have that mandate. This mayor will not have that coalition. And this mayor will use those strong mayor powers. And my guess is that, um, that we will also find the reasonable restrictions to those powers moving forward. I think that point about mandates a, a really important one because the field is so broad and there's so many sort of disparate uh, uh, points of view being brought to bear on this uh, on this race that, that, that you're right. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see um, how that unfolds. Uh, we're almost at time. And, and so I, I want to give each of you, say, a minute just to kind of provide some concluding thoughts on, you know, maybe on what we've discussed thus far, which has been a lot. It's been a wide ranging discussion, but just sort of final thoughts on the upcoming election um, and, and what do you think is uh, uh, important to see? So maybe, Karen, uh, I'll start with you and we'll go through uh, in order. You know, I think it's a really exciting time for our city, Jason. I think um, we are at a moment of change. And, uh, you know, it has felt a little bit like we've been managing the decline of a great city. And I think that this election and this new mayor will have an opportunity to reverse that decline. But I think part of that will be contingent on their ability to put the city agenda as not just a municipal agenda, but also one for the national interest and the provincial interest. Thank you very much. Michael Cotro, final thoughts? Yeah, I think the uh, the next mayor uh, has to have the ability to work with all levels of government and to bring in new partners and uh, really look for ways to uh, to build that regional strategy at the same time focus on on Toronto. So I'm looking forward to uh, to working with the new mayor and uh, I know uh, our government is and uh, we'll see what happens. I guess we've got a month left. Thanks, Michael. And over the next month, Michael Giles, um, you know, what do you hope to see in terms of the, these candidates when you're thinking about home construction in the GTA? Well, you know, the truth is, we, as I said earlier, we met with all of them. And, and uh, you know, I, I share Karen's optimism. I was uh, pleasantly surprised by uh, the conversations I had with them. And, uh, you know, the, I think that the potential is there for, you know, a seismic change in the way we do things in this city. It's a generational opportunity. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, the, those who are likely to win and that we met with them do seem to have that perception that this is a, this is a generational opportunity. And I, I think they'll take it. And, and uh, we may see a lot of parks named after the next mayor of Toronto sometime. What do you think, Stephen Aller? You get the final word. So I'm hoping over the next month that the general public becomes interested in the mayoral election and that we don't just have 29% turnout. We've seen a decline in voter participation federally, provincially, municipally over the last 10, 15 years. And we need the mayor to be the mayor of all Torontonians, whether you voted for that candidate or not. They have to work well with the federal and provincial government, the opposition members, the big city mayor's caucus, and things like that. 
for us to move forward. And so I'm hoping that any of the front runners who win also can tone down the rhetoric a bit upon election and then govern. Because campaigning is one thing, governing is something else. And to be a successful, to be successful in governing, you have to be a consensus builder. Well, I want to thank you all very much for taking part in, in, in today's podcast. It's been great. I think it shed a lot of light on the issues surrounding housing and broader affordability as we move towards the election on, on June 26th. So thank you all very much again for participating. Thank, thank you. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. And please don't forget to cast your vote in the mayoral by-election coming up on June 26th. You may also vote at advanced polls between June 8th and June 13th. To get more voter information, including the locations of polling stations, you can check out the City of Toronto's website at toronto.ca forward slash city dash government forward slash elections forward slash by dash election. And make sure you don't miss an episode of Ready to Real Estate. Subscribe to Treb's Ready to Real Estate podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll talk to you again soon. That's it for us. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media and visit our website, treb.ca. That's T-R-R-E-B to find market insights and more. This has been another episode of Ready to Real Estate. Thanks for tuning in.